Hip. Uh, hip. Confess. And a hip bone. Confess. And a thigh bone. Confess. Shin bone, knee bone. Confess. Back bone, all yours, Dad. Confess. Knee bone. Well, it's zika hook, crack, den. Dry bones, it's zika hook, crack, den. Dry bones, it's zika hook, crack, den. Dry bones, now hear the word of the Lord. Welcome to Prisoner Worth Watching, where we're looking at this groundbreaking 50-year-old show about spies, paranoia, and politics that's more relevant now than ever. I'm your host, a man who spends my morning singing Them Bones in the Shower. My co-host is Guy, who it turns out has been number one all along, or he's a monkey, or a rocket, or something like that. Don't ask me. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. And today, we have returning guest Andrew Heaton. Hello, Mr. Heaton. Hey, good to be back. Thanks for having me. So, we basically put up a bat Heaton signal on this <laughs> to get your help. <laughs> you know the magic bullet catch that, like, Penn and Teller popularized? This is a magic trick where a gun is shot at the magician and they catch it in the bullet in their teeth. And it's actually true that many magicians have died doing that trick. Mm-hmm. Sort of similarly, there are podcasters who have not survived trying to cover the end of The Prisoner. <laughs> there was a guy I really like on YouTube who summarizes shows and he did a really good job going through all the episodes. And then he hit the last two of these and it's been like two years and he couldn't do it. And and he he's he's still basically on a mushroom trip. Yeah, like, exactly. watch those two things. Yeah. <laughs> and I've listened to a podcast episode where one of the hosts just spent the entire time sputtering. They were so angry. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll see. You know, um so either you're here to save us or like crabs in a podcaster bucket, we're trying to pull you down <laughs> with us. <laughs> yeah, I mean I, I have peered into the face of madness and I can never unsee what I have seen. So no, noting that I will no longer think entirely logically anymore. Uh, I've got a okay. I've got a, a theory that I think makes the last two episodes, which are sublimely bizarre, <laughs> for for anybody listening at home who who is uh, listening to us before they watch the series. It is some of the weirdest stuff I've ever seen on television. But I, here, mm. this is my theory: the prisoner is described as allegorical. I think it's atmospheric. There is allegory in it. There are things that McGowan wanted to communicate to the watchers of the prisoner. I think the last two episodes are very, very atmospheric. They are they are almost <laughs> more like uh, oh, I forget the guy's name. But there's there's a director who's really into transcendental meditation. Mm. I, I feel like what he's wanting to do is elicit a feeling from the audience, which is mm. one of campy bewilderment, and he pulls mm. that off. If that's his goal, he very <laughs> much pulls that off. I don't think that. I I think if you try to interpret the last two episodes using a rational logical mindset your brain will explode much like the computer did in episode <laughs> what was that six it was the general think. yeah there was a, yeah we, in the general yeah yeah we treat it as the second episode uh, yeah and as we go through i can offer also a couple of kind of maybe 
both story and, and real world explanations for how we get there. But by the end of the episode, at least one podcaster won't survive. So state of the end <laughs> to find out which. You said atmosphere, and that reminded me, I've been playing a lot lately with these generative neural networks, they're called, where you type in a prompt and it mm -hmm. generates art based on that. Oh, cool. And it's bizarre because you get something that has kind of the gestalt of what you want, you know, like uh, mountains in Tahiti or whatever. But when you look closer, the closer you look, the wronger it gets. <laughs> and that, <laughs> it makes me think of that. If you haven't seen this, Heaton, it's been viral. I'll send you a link. It's really fascinating. Yeah, and you do. can't help but spend five or 10 minutes at least. I think guys spent more than that uh, trying well, much, much you know, more. Yeah. <laughs> is, is, every time you do it is, it, is it creating it from scratch? Yes. Yeah. You can take so the same prompt over and over and get something different. If you use, you know, strange words together, it's going to take elements of all those words and put them together into an image. So it's really amazing. Mm. Okay, so today, after all that, we're talking about the last two episodes of the series, Once Upon a Time and Fallout. Our usual format is to do a very detailed walkthrough of each episode, but these last two episodes are so unusual, I don't think it would serve our listeners for us to do that. Honestly, if you want to fully experience these episodes, you just got to watch them. <laughs> Whether you want to watch them, well, that's a question, you know, we're trying to answer today. Uh, so instead of our usual walkthrough, we'll do a relatively brief summary, which is at least brief for us, <laughs> and then just talk about the episodes and the series as a whole. Some context for these last two episodes. So the network originally wanted an ongoing series. Then there was the idea that maybe they would do two seasons. Each would be 13 episodes. And so the first episode we're going to talk about was actually filmed early on. It was supposed to be the, the final for the first season. Then they decided they were just going to do one season, so they took this, the first episode, Once Upon a Time, rejiggered it a bit, even though they'd already filmed it, and then put it together with the last episode, which Patrick McGowan literally wrote in a weekend. No. <laughs> <laughs> or had a dream or took some drugs, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, George Markstein, the story editor who we see get abused by McGowan at the start of each episode, he tended to stand for doing more cookie-cutter episodes that would serve an ongoing series. And he and McGowan argued constantly, and Markstein left the show before these final episodes because they couldn't agree on how to end it. So with the kind of adult supervision gone, McGowan just got to do whatever he wanted to do. <laughs> Wait, so if that guy left earlier, all of the episodes of the series would have been like the uh, the last two I saw? <laughs> yeah, if you watch through them all, you kind of see the tension, and you see a couple where McGowan gets more of his way, and those are always the ones that get a little weirder. Yeah. There's one where he just wanted to do a Western, so uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that one. It's called Living in Harmony. I actually like that one, but, you know, they just did it because McGowan wanted to do a Western, and <laughs> it didn't really make sense in context of the series. But <laughs> One thing about this first episode, before we jump into it, I want to mention this up front because I think it really informs the episode. You know, this is a battle between McGowan and, and Leo McKern is number two. Well, McGowan and Leo McKern, the actor, we're also having that battle, and McGowan was directing this. I think he used a pseudonym on this one. And he pushed Leo McKern very hard, so hard, that he either had a heart attack or a nervous breakdown, and they had to stop filming for a while for him mm. to recover. Now, he forgave McGowan and came back for the final episode, and I'll have some quotes and things I'm going to insert about that. So, in a way, what we're about to talk about with this first thing is is kind of true, the 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 tension you see here is a, is a real tension that is occurring. So buckle in. Here we go. Number six, please. 
Why do you care? I know your voice. I have been here before. Why do you care? You'll never know. So this episode, Once Upon a Time, it's essentially, you could consider the first part of a two-part episode. Although it can stand alone on its own, the next episode that Ron covers, though, that can't stand alone, really, unless you've seen what's going on in this one. It starts in number two's office, and the butler's there with a the cart, and Rover is in the sphere chair. He fits in there perfectly, and it's kind of kind of funny. I thought this was great, actually, because, you know, it's clear that number two has been brought back against his will, and... When he comes into the room, the first thing he sees is Rover in his chair, which is a clear kind of message to him about sort of who's in charge around here. So I thought that was really interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, as we've mentioned, it's Leo McKern, but he's not nearly as cheerful as he was in Chimes of Big Ben. And also, he snaps at the butler a lot in this episode, which uh, may have consequences down the road. (laughs) So number two is very unhappy about having been called back, or he... uh, He's not uh, really enthusiastic about the challenge, but he's got to do it. He's watching some film clips of number six to sort of reacquaint himself. And uh, one clip shows up twice, and this is, you know, kind of the touchstone of the series, as we've discussed in the past, or I speculated in the past, and I think I was right. I've resigned. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. I think part of the deal here is that McKern is reviewing all the stuff that's happened since he was last number two. So we see a bunch of clips of the different stories that we've seen in the meantime, which then sets him up for his next thing. So he asks number one for approval for a, a process called the degree absolute which turns out to be an interrogation technique, uh, like the third degree, but, uh, much more absolute. He uh, has only a week to do it. He he wants more time, and he says that a week isn't long enough could damage number six, but that's all he's getting, so he has to go with it. He goes to apartment number six while number six is sleeping, and he sings some nursery rhymes. Uh, it's kind of a a little disturbing how he, he does he it. He shouts sing some nursery <laughs> rhymes. Like, he's, he's singing them in a technical sense, but the subtext of it is that he's very angry and basically <laughs> shouting them. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Yeah. <laughs> in the mind control lamp that hangs over number six's bed that comes down and it does its thing, the next morning, number two has been sleeping in the living room. He wakes up, and number six is acting like a trusting child. Number two asks him if he wants to go walkies. Yeah, so apparently they've kind of basically wiped his mind or regressed him back to being almost an infant. Yeah. Yeah. They go to number two's office, and they take the floor platforms down to a big room. It's full of objects that are appropriate to various stages of a man's life. There's a crib and a hobby horse, chalkboard, a wardrobe, uh, various things. Later on, number number two will refer to this as the embryo room. Also in here, there's a big cage, and it has a kitchen and a living room. And that's going to turn out to be way more important than you would think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Number two explains they're going to be in there together for one week. He says, neither of us can leave till death do us part. (laughs) And he quotes Shakespeare, his acts being seven ages. That's a description of the process they're going to go through. They're going to 
relive uh, number six's whole life, essentially. The first stage is the child, and in this role, number two, uh, he, he's both the, the father and the headmaster. And there's a lot of interesting little things that go on here. There's a scene on a seesaw where they uh, have some repetitive dialogue. It's kind of like a word association test, but it's also more like echoing. Jackie shall have a new master. A new master. Master. Jackie. Master. Jackie. Master. Jackie. Master. Mother. Master. Father. They go on to the, the number two is headmaster, and the headmaster's trying to get number six to snitch on one of his classmates, and he won't do it. He says, that's honor, sir. And number two says, we don't talk about such things. <laughs> one other notable quote, which will show up later in the episode again. Number two says, you're a fool. Number six says, yes, sir, not a rat. Mm -hmm. And then the next sequence is graduation day. Number two is praising number six, who is the star graduate, uh, seeing what progress he's made and uh, being less antisocial and all that. Number two makes his first effort to find out why he resigned, and he presses number six about it. Finally, number six just starts shouting, No! <laughs> and they, uh, they struggle on the floor until the butler knocks out number six. This amused me though. The the butler took his time, right? Like he slowly <laughs> walks over to a closet. Well, well, number two is getting the crap beat out of him. You know, slowly walks over to a closet, opens the closet, gets out a bat, <laughs> slowly walks over to number six, then knocks him out. I just thought of his deliberate approach to this was very funny. Yeah, he wasn't in any particular hurry there. And number two uh, says, "I'm beginning to like him." <laughs> the next sequence. It seems more like sort of an interlude where uh, number number six is rocking on a hobby horse. And uh, number six, it turns out he'll count to five, but he won't say six. He's developed an aversion to it. Next, we're in a boxing match. Number two is both a sparring partner, and apparently he has been number six's coach because he says he made him the champ. <laughs> Again, he asks, why did you resign? Number six knocks number two to the floor with an uppercut. So he's somehow resisting these resignation questions. <laughs> and then they're in a fencing match. And uh, this is kind of an interesting part because number two is urging number six to kill. He says, kill, kill, kill. He's very, very insistent about it. He, he doesn't let up. And he says uh, he provokes Number six, by saying, your resignation was cowardice, wasn't it? And then number six pokes at number two with his fencing foil. He gets a couple near misses. He jabs it into a wood panel right behind number two, and the protective bead on the end of the foil comes off. So now he's got a really serious weapon. Mm. And still, number two is persistent. He's still urging number six to kill him. And finally, six stabs him in the shoulder. And that doesn't seem to bother number two. That seems to be part of the part of the degree absolute. <laughs> also, another rare time when we see blood. There's only a couple times in the whole series where we've seen blood, and and here he has blood on his hand from his shoulder. Yeah, yeah. And once again, it's not really the right color, but oh well. <laughs> well, it's it's British blood, which tends oh to be dark. okay, <laughs> all right, okay. It all makes sense now. Next, he's in a job interview, and this is, uh, they're both in that big cage we mentioned. They're in the dining room area of the cage, and uh, uh, 
Number two asks why uh, he's as he's been asking in many different contexts. Then number six is the response that he says is, "Oh, it's the way I'm made." And number two seems really pleased with that. He says, "Oh, excellent!" Like he's getting somewhere. He thinks. And I'm wondering, it's the way I made, this just struck me this morning. I think this might be a reference to a, a, a Psalm 139.14. It says, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And we know that Magoon was a devout Catholic, so I'm wondering if he might have just stuck that in there. So number two is planning to hire number six for a job in the banking industry, but first number six has to beat the director. So he gets on a very small lawnmower and rides it <laughs> to the director's office, which is just in another part of the embryo room. Um, it's a funny contrast to his cool spy car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely doesn't have the same panache. After meeting with the director, who is of course also number two, Number six seems really pleased to have this top secret job because the banking job is just a cover for the, the spy job, it turns out. So he's, he's happy to be a spy now. But then we see number six driving the mower again, and the butler is in a bobby uniform, and he pulls him over for speeding. <laughs> and he has to go to court, and uh, number two is the judge. And number six explains that he was on an important mission, a state secret. And he says, such business is above the law, which may, he, that may be something that he repents later on. Mm -hmm. There could be a variety of reasons that's in there. And number two hands down the sentence of six days in jail. <laughs> number six says, I appeal against unfair treatment. It strikes me that this maybe could be a clue to the reason he resigned, but then again, it could just be his general attitude because he does seem to resist unfair treatment, whether it's for him or for other people. And then he's in the jail, and number two kind of gets an explanation of why he resigned, or a very abstract one. He's, number six says it was for peace of mind, which isn't enough information for number two, <laughs> of course. And number six goes into one of the kitchen drawers and pulls out a big sharp knife and hands it to number two through the bars and he says kill me yeah and i felt like number two was surprised that there was a knife in the drawer and this was kind of maybe an oversight because we've had multiple previous episodes where they don't allow things like this it could be a weapon to be anywhere in the village so right. and all of a sudden he has this very long sharp knife yeah although they did have the fencing foils too but that was probably part yeah. of the plan so yeah this this <laughs> could have been a surprise sure and number two's hand, he's holding the knife, and he gets into the cage with number six, and his hand, he, he holds up the knife to number six's throat, but his hand is really shaking, visibly, visibly nervous. But that ends up not going anywhere, and next we see uh, number six during the war. They're sitting, straddling something that's kind of like a big sawhorse. It's supposed to be a bomber, though, and number six is the bombardier. And he misses the shot because the countdown includes the number six, and he again <laughs> refuses to say it. So the plane is shot down, or that's what number two tells number six, and he goes along with it. They have to bail out, and then number six is a prisoner of the Germans, which is to say of number two, <laughs> who speaks German, and presumably uh, number six does too, because uh, he can reply in English every time number two says something. 
Now things take a little bit of a turn, because while number two's interrogating him, number six manages to say the number six. And in this scene, he seems to recover his Meguan smirk. And the next thing we see is number two lying on a table, and it seems that number six is in control now, both in control of his faculties and in control of the situation. And and we've also seen the butler has sort of switched his allegiance. He's now clearly kind of working for number six instead of number two, which frustrates Mm -hmm. number two, yeah. Oh, sure. Number two and number six are discussing this uh, degree absolute, and number two says... The patient must come to trust his doctor totally. And uh, number six says sometimes they change places. And that's exactly what is happening here. But despite uh, that place changing, which, which number two doesn't quite seem to realize is happening yet, number two seems to have recovered his old cheerfulness that we had seen in the Chimes of Big Ben. He, uh, he gets up and he runs into the cage and he very jovially pours drinks for them both. He gives number six a tour of the embryo room, not that he hasn't been in it for a week already, (laughs) but uh, he shows off the secure steel doors and the big red clock next to it, Uh, and he seems shocked when he sees the clock because there are only five minutes left. Uh, It seems that he didn't realize it was getting that close. And then number two mentions something that seems, it seems like a digression, but actually in the episode to follow, it will uh, have a bit of a payoff. He mentions the cell is self-contained and it has food for six months. He says you could go anywhere in it. It's detachable. (laughs) So worth keeping in mind. Number six locks number two inside this cell and gives the key to the butler. And number two laughs. He says, he thinks you're the boss now. And number six replies, I am. (laughs) Number two says, and this is a repeat of a quote from earlier. He says, fool. Six says, yes, a fool, not a rat. Well, number six has the butler unlock the cage again, uh, although there's nowhere really for number two to go except in the embryo room. Number six counts down the seconds of the last minute. And he... In the very, very final seconds, the last 10 or so seconds, he starts saying, die, die. And number two, obligingly, dies. <laughs> Is he like drinking some wine or something and then he just falls over? I didn't, you yeah. know, uh, it wasn't clear, yeah. like, was he dying because of his stress or was there something in the wine? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, um... Yeah, you know, I, th- I think it's just because somehow this degree absolute is supposed to be designed that one or the other of them mm-hmm. dies at, at the end of exactly one week down to the second. <laughs> so it's a good design, I guess. So the supervisor enters, the one we've seen before, you know, with the glasses and all that. And he says, congratulations. What do you desire? And number six says, number one. The supervisor says, I'll take you. And that's the end of that one. <laughs> so, uh, Heaton, if, if this was the original plan, if this was the end of 13 episodes, the first season, what, what would you think of this? You know, how does this episode work for you? You know, not my favorite, not my favorite, Ron. I like the actor that plays number two. I, he has kind mm-hmm. of a British Orson Welles thing going for him that I enjoy, but I found the, I don't know, the, the weird childlike, I don't know singing old kid songs and, and doing all of that. I found it to actually be a tad tedious 
One, mm-hmm. one, like, it was like, like we're going to do this weird thing. And I'm like, all right, I'm on board. And they're like, all right, well, we're going to do it for 24 consecutive minutes. And I was like, ah, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, all right. I, I got, I got it the first five minutes, gang. Um, so, uh, in, in that capacity, I've, I find it a little strange. What, like, I'll, I'll tell you what, what would have helped, I think, and I believe I mentioned this on your show last time is, you know, the entire show is this global conspiracy being erected to convince one guy to tell them why he resigned his job. And I would love to have more information on anything about like, just, I don't know. I think they could have been building up Mm -hmm. um, the elements of that thing. He knows that we, we, the audience are trying to figure out of like, well, you know, the the, the prime minister had had shown me the nuclear codes. We're like, (laughs) oh, okay. It involves nukes. Okay. But they never do that. Uh, Mm -hmm. But instead of this Mm -hmm. one, it's just, they're, they're relentlessly wanting to know why did you quit your job? And then also we're going to put on these weird old timey sunglasses. I will note the visuals are great. Like I, the yeah. visuals throughout the prisoner are fantastic. I'm not let down in this episode at all. I mm-hmm. like that they're using what I assume are 19th century carved sunglasses prior to the invention of plastic. Uh, and, <laughs> I've never and, seen uh, those before. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's my understanding that Eskimos use them, and that mm. that a long time ago people would use them just in general because they just have those slits there. Yeah. Instead Mm. of glasses, they're more like coverings for your eye with a little slit in the center. Yeah. Yeah. That that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And and that seems to be in keeping with the uh, the aesthetics of the prisoner, which have this kind of like maybe 1890s to 1910 kind of feel. There's this sort of Mm -hmm. like, like in the same way that a lot of American television will almost fetishize the 50s. I get this vibe that the British had kind of a thing for like the pre-war period they wanted to harken back to, but then couple it with this cool 1970s, you know, turtleneck rounded doors kind of deal. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And I'll say for me, if this is as weird as we got, some of it doesn't work for me, some of the tedium that you talk about, but also I have to admit that some of the images I spent decades remembering before I even went back and, and revisited were from this episode, you know, the intensity yeah. of their interactions. I really like the war part. They, you know, it's amazing how having a couple of people on a plywood board can replicate with, you know, with gas masks on the or whatever, mm-hmm. could replicate and a little bit of smoke. Um, being in a war situation, it was really intense. So, so I think there's some really good stuff to pull out of this. My challenge is where we go next. Because <laughs> in, in a way, we could say, if you thought this was weird, we haven't even gotten started. <laughs> right. There's, a, there's at least a coherent thesis to this episode, which is... <laughs> brainwashed guy is being put through a series of trials to trick him into revealing information. Like you get what's happening. It's just mm. a very strange expression to it. Right. And that he's progressing through his life. Month. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so guy, do you have anything on this before we move to the next one? Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed this one fine. It was, uh, you know, they, they're always trying something different in each episode. So I, you know, some of them will strike more of a chord with me than others, but I, I've always enjoyed every new take that they have. So, uh, you know, this, this wouldn't be one of my favorite episodes, but it's, uh, I enjoyed it still. I thought it was neat, but the next one is a lot more fun. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one word for it. Let's see. <laughs> okay. So next up is fallout. So specific context for this one, where the last one, I believe, uh, McGowan used a pseudonym for the director this one he proudly announces right up front that he wrote and directed it as i mentioned he literally wrote it in a weekend and one way to look at this final episode is that you know by this point and with some of the episodes we've skipped in this order 
the creative juices were exhausted. I mean, they never meant to do this many episodes. They just started throwing stuff out there. And so now they just wanted to get it over. Again, there was no adult supervision now that their script supervisor <laughs> was gone. And so McGowan just got to do whatever he wanted to do on this one. So we'll see what that is. <laughs> he decided to go out with a bang. Let's put it that way. Thanks for the trip, Dad. Be grateful for the opportunity of pleading your case before the assembly. <laughs> Baby, what a crazy scene. <laughs> Collarbone's connected to the neck bone, and the neck bone's connected to the head bone. Now hear that word Number the 48. Load. Them bones gonna walk around. Them bones, them bones gonna walk around. So we pick up right from the end of the previous episode and the supervisor and the butler are number six in number two's office. They descend on a lift, you know, so we've already seen number two coming up. Now we get to see like what's underneath that and they descend down and they're going along a hallway and a little interesting thing here. The Beatles song, love, love, love starts playing. Yeah, I, I, I do love that by the way. And it's also a fun contrast in that previously my most intense cinematic attachment to that song is from Love Actually, which uses it to great effect. But they, they have it. It's, it's fantastic. The Beatles is fantastic throughout this episode. And it's so such a weird contrast, too, yeah. with everything happening. Well, and also in terms of watching old stuff. So, for example, who used the Beatles at one point? But now if you watch it, they've excised that part because they no longer have the rights to it. This is the only show that apparently got absolute rights to the songs. And they've never had to remove them. So so you'll see it no matter how you're watching it, which is um, interesting. Uh, the mm. Beatles were big fans of the show, so I guess they allowed them to, to do that. So they go through the cave to a rusty metal door. The butler uses a key to open it. And now we go into a very large cave room with military people marching around, a, a throne slash chair on a big dais, and the seesaw that we've always seen in the control room, except now the guys on the seesaw, instead of having like viewfinders, they're armed with machine guns. So apparently they're ready to mow people down if necessary. And we spend most of the episode in this room. So what, what did you guys think of it? <laughs> I liked it. I mean, you got the stalactites, you got the big uh, control computers. It's just a sort of a smorgasbord of weird stuff. It's fun. Yeah, I, I thought it was a fun episode. I, I, I think it's almost... I think you should almost think of this episode more like a music video than, <laughs> than, than a coherent ABC sitcom plot style thing. It's, it's hard to follow. And it, and if you, if you try to approach it too rationally, your brain will break. But if you just kind of sit back and enjoy the spectacle of it, I think it's good. Yeah. So there's a judge in British style legal getup. So he's got the wig um, and a red robe. In front of a large jury, and the jury is composed of people in white robes with with half black and half white face masks. So it's a, you know, bizarre little image. And each jury member has a placard in front of them. And they represent different things. You can feel, I, to me, I think they were trying to represent aspects of society. So one placard will say reactionaries, another mm -hmm. will say defectors, another one will say security. Uh, I, I don't totally know what that's all about, but the, you know, yeah, there's, uh, the other ones, there's youngsters, there's education. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Cause I didn't, I didn't catch the first three. I just, I didn't have a good enough uh, view of it. I had thought that they were like kind of a mock parliamentary assembly. Like, mm -hmm. like these are the, right. you know, the, the, this is the committee, but actually that makes more sense, Ron, that the, the, it's sort of society as a whole. Yeah. 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 So instead of representing a country, they're representing one of these things. What were you saying, guy? I was going to say, it reminded me kind of of the United Nations, you know, where yeah. they all have the their names and the country in front of them. 
Yeah. We see throughout, there's a large cylindrical object, which might be a rocket in the cave with a big one on painted on it and an all seeing green eye thingy that seems to give mental commands. <laughs> see, So apparently we're getting close. Either this is number one or we're getting closer. Number six sits in the chair on the dais and the judge makes a speech. They're all here due to a democratic crisis. Number six has survived the ultimate test and has gained the right to be an individual. And so these proceedings are to transfer the ultimate power to number six. He seems genuinely awed. Like the, <laughs> first of all, the, the judge is not nearly so constrained as a regular judge. I know some judges, they're usually not quite that. Uh, Isn't your dad a judge or something? Yeah, he's a judge. And I can tell you, he rarely gets like, like kicks back into fits, uh, peals of laughter while, <laughs> while doing, while, while judging. However, the, the judge does not appear to be toying with him. Like I mm. don't get the impression in the episode that this, like, it, this might be Kabuki theater. They're not acting like it's Kabuki theater, like right. where they're they're poking him up with sticks. And, and the judge seems genuinely, if not fearful, at least it, at least respectful of him. Right. Yeah. And and you're right. The, there doesn't seem to be a trick here. I mean, they really are in the process of tr the one thing that's kind of weird is okay. He gained the right to be an individual. That would be one thing. But for some reason, because and I get the sense that like he's the only person who's ever gained the right to be an individual, therefore all power is going to be transferred to him, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. And what we, what he has to sit through before he gets to be an individual is a couple of trials. And so the first trial is of number 48 and the, the actor is Alexis Kenner. We last saw him playing uh, the boy in living in harmony, the Western mm -hmm. one. And basically just McGowan loved him so much. So they just brought him back. So it's not, I don't think he's really playing that same character again because he was killed mm -hmm. in that one. So they just brought him back because they liked him. He's, put on trial and his response being put on trial is he starts singing them bones <laughs> greatly Which disrupting real, the real, proceedings i guess like real catchy i, I had that <laughs> yeah. in my head after i watched this episode yeah. they do a good job yeah. with that oh yeah and love it or hate it that's the thing that people tend to remember from this episode is them bones because it goes <laughs> on and on and on <laughs> uh, and he, uh, he he does uh, some pretty clever little athletic things. Like uh, there's one point where he's running across the desks of all the jury members. You know, he just mm -hmm. jumps from one to the other, and it's a uh, I'd probably end up breaking my neck if I tried. Yeah. <laughs> well, and also I want to give a shout out to the jury members who are honestly really good at mm -hmm. displaying emotion very quickly and very emphatically with body language. Like <laughs> he the 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 first time when they haul him out of that pipe. And he goes like, you know, them bones, them bones. You just, you see all of them go, ah, and start like, like, uh, you know, flipping out and, and like, like, right. it's like they're looking around for papers and things, but they're not just, it's not the body language isn't, oh no, my finger wagging. It's they're, they're really, but then they all turn in the second rendition of it and start like going into black gospel choir mode of, <laughs> of like, we're really into this song now. They're like, they, they, they had some really good body work in that episode. Yeah, you're right. No, they did a great job. And especially because they all had these masks on, so they, they couldn't use facial expressions or anything. Right, yeah. And uh, so uh, once number 48 is subdued, there's a whole bunch of gobbledygook between him and the judge. Uh, I don't Did either of you make any sense of this? <laughs> Young Nan. You got a message. I just got it. I give? You've never been with it. I mean with us. I'm gone. Gone away. But you were here. Then you went and gone. Got the word. Oh, yes. Yes. The bright light, Dad. Got the sign. Sign? The light. Light? The message. Then you went and gone. Why? Give it to me, baby. That's it. No, I 
thought this this was my thinking at the time was I thought they were doing a spoken word version of a song that I don't know. Like I, I got the impression <laughs> that they that because they've been doing all the singing right. And then he's like, you know, Daddy, I have it. Lay it on me. Something, something. Give it to me. Something, something. Give it to me. Give it like like it seemed to me that that was almost like they were they were doing a song and that was what was happening. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. It, uh, the only thing I could make of it is that maybe the judge was was toying with him, like like uh, imitating having sympathy for his hip style and so forth. And in case you were missing it, there's now lots more them bones. <laughs> it just goes on and on and on. Do we is there do we is there any reason for them bones in particular? Like I <laughs> the, like there is a, there is a re, like there's a there's a god reference that could be Magoon, right? Cuz it ends with, you know, mm. them's the word of the Lord. No, hear right. the word of the Lord. So it's kind of a it's kind of a gospel song. But it's it's so it's it's kind of a juvenile catchy song. So I didn't get the impression that it had like you know, when number two quotes Shakespeare, I'm like, ah, I, you know what? I bet that is. I bet he's alluding to Shakespeare. I bet that's what that's about. <laughs> with, with this one, though, when they're singing like, you know, and the dry bone connects to the lag bone. I'm like, I, okay, so this is Marcus Aurelius. What are we, what's going on here? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have any freaking idea <laughs> to you guys. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, uh, the song overall, I guess it would be considered folk music, which was a big thing in the '60s among the rebellious youth. You know, so yeah, that's that's so funny to me right now, given that I I like I really enjoy bluegrass, which is kind of adjacent to folk music. The, a lot mm -hmm. of the time, they they blend together, and I can tell you, the 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 beating heart of that audience is fifty-two-year-old guys with beards who enjoy fishing. So like, it, I just, I do not think of folk right. music as, right. I think of folk music as, you know, like, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't see it as rebellious. It's not like it, it in no way resonates with me as the punk music of my generation. Right. Yeah. Today it doesn't have that same, uh, atmosphere about it. <laughs> so after lots more of them bones, and if you think we're kidding, it goes on, and on uh, number 48 is found guilty of being a rebellious youth. So he's going to be sentenced later. And we now have the trial of number two. <laughs> a funny little thing here. So the way they introduce him is pretty interesting. This large metal box descends into the room and then the cover of the box moves aside. And it turns out this is the mobile living space we saw in the last episode with a little living room and a kitchen and all that where number two died. And in fact, he's still there dead on the floor. And the, uh, the number one rocket issues some kind of command and the judge orders that number two be resuscitated and suddenly springs to life. So the, f the funny thing here is this is a case where in the intervening months between the times they filmed the last episode and this one, Leo McKern looked very different. He'd gained weight. He'd shaved his beard. So what they do to get around that is in order to bring him back to life, they just reverse the shot of him falling to the floor. <laughs> so he well, springs up. Yeah, I, I I think that was just I think that was just on the video monitor. I think they actually yeah. carry yeah. his body over to the. Yeah, I, I I'm, I'm with Guy. I think that's right because the, you you also see the the glass of wine like come up from shards into a holy good right. glass. So it, it it's they're they're giving it the rewind. I think as opposed to uh, bringing it back to life, they're on the floor. Right. Well, so at some point here, they do bring him back to life. But the funny thing is, in order to cover for the fact that his appearance has changed, the very first thing they do is spread shaving cream all over him and shave oh, him yeah, yeah. so that he will then look like the actor actually looks which, now. I wish I could say at the, at the time, because I didn't realize that was the case when I watched mm -hmm. it. I had assumed, I was like, oh, okay, this is like where they put lubricant on you before they put on those EKG 
<laughs> suction cups. So I, I just assume it's like, okay, they're going to fry his brain, but they're they're afraid it's going to burn his face. So they're putting some kind of thermoresistant solve on there. Oh, right. yeah. Guy and I have talked about this multiple times in our podcast. There's this concept of Doyleists versus Watsonians. The Doyleist is the person who looks at something like this. And the classic thing is when Sherlock Holmes was killed and the Doyleist will say, well, the, uh, the author was tired of writing these stories, so he killed off Sherlock Holmes. The Watsonian will say, well, you know, Sherlock Holmes died because he fell off the cliff and, you know, this and that, right? It takes the, the narrative thing. So here we have, you know, you're you're doing the narrative one and I'm doing the Doyleist one. <laughs> yeah. No, it's well, the I, I, think, I think you're probably right, but I got to say the Watsonian one's more fun. <laughs> when you've got to like, you, you're, you're like, you know, why like clearly the, the answer to the question is the, the writer got drunk and forgot the name of the character, uh, you know, in, in episode 58 or whatever, the Watsonians going, ah, oh, no, 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 no. This shows the transformation and the inner pupa of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so once he's been shaved, um, the butler also was in the box or something. He comes out and stands by number six's side. So he seems to have now fully transitioned to working for number six. Number two makes a speech about how he's kind of ashamed that he didn't put up too much resistance when he was brought to the village. But in recognition of his skills, he was given great power. You know, he was made number two. And now he finally decides to resist. He gets into this weird staring contest with the green eye and the rocket. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't think he's, I don't think it's a resist. I think he's pissed. Mm -hmm. he, like, he, he didn't want to be there in the first place. He, we, we now realize that number two was like number six, brought there against his will. But unlike number six, he buckled and he joined the system and he did whatever they wanted him to do. Then he died. And then they, they goddamn brought him back to life. Like, he, he has that line about like, you couldn't even leave me in peace. Like He, he doesn't even want to be there. And he's angry at them. And so when number six asks him, you know, have you seen number one? He does apparently the standard default move for every single character in the prisoner, which is to uproariously laugh and <laughs> then approaches the green eye and stares at it. And I think maybe spits at it. Yeah, he does. Yeah. And he shorts it out when he spits in it. Yeah. So, I mean, he kind of redeems himself, you know, I think at this point by, by, you know, trying to buckle the system and he's now being held for sentencing along with number 48. So our two trials are over and now we're back to number six and because he's proven himself as the only one true individual, he is free to go. And they provide everything he needs. They give him a key to his house, traveler's checks worth a million, which is, especially in the 60s, pretty nice deal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Still a hassle to use traveler's checks, but back then it was our only option. Right. Mm -hmm. And, but suddenly number six isn't sure he wants to leave and he's going to make his own speech. And this is really interesting. Actually, to me, this is one of the more interesting things of this episode, which is He's going to make a speech to talk about what he's learned or what he wants people in the village to know or whatever. But he starts out the speech with the word I. And every time he says the word I, the jury interrupts him with all of them, you know, dozens of people chanting I, I, I over and over again. And he is prevented from delivering his message. And there's some little weird thing in here about individualism and I, and yeah. you know, mm -hmm. I, yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. also, I can't, I can't quite, because at this point it does feel like kabuki theater to me. Previously, it seemed that there was this actual, you know, quote unquote inauguration going on. It, at this point, I, it, it seems like they're mocking him and that the, the, the speech is yet another mechanism with which to try and break him down. Yeah. Uh, that's, the, that's the vibe I get. It's ambiguous. I can't quite tell. Uh, yeah. it's, all, it's, it's possible that like this could be a weird Monty Python moment where in the life of Brian, he goes, you know, 
you're all individuals. And you hear all of them in unison go, we're all individuals. You've got to think for yourself. We've got to think for ourselves. And like, it's, it's possible that that's what's happening, that when he says I, they're all saying I. The impression I get, and this is all verbal, so I, I can't corroborate this, but I get the impression that Magua is saying I, as in the letter I, and they're all saying A-Y-E, comma, A-Y-E. Hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like I, I, I is an ascent. Uh, hmm. But, the, but again, uh, they seem to be just going into these fits. It, it, it triggers them. And the sub the subtitles on the disc I was watching, it's A Y E when they talk. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so I want uh, maybe in the script. I didn't catch that at all. So that's a good one. Well, and now the judge tells him it's time to meet number one. So after the whole series, <laughs> here we are, and he gets into a little tube elevator thingy and descends, and goes into this room it's i think it's in the rocket and he finds number 48 and number two imprisoned in plastic tubes i don't quite know what this means but each tube has their number but also says orbit so like orbit 48 and orbit 2 which makes you wonder were they gonna shoot these guys off into space i don't know maybe i mean it's isn't number one a big rocket that gets (laughs) fired in a minute like was that was that the plan they were gonna get sent to a space colony or or be jettisoned into the the great beyond (laughs) Yeah, no idea. So number six ascends some stairs and finds this weird room with a bunch of globes in it and stuff. And there's a masked man watching speeches from number six on a TV. And the masked man is in a white robe and he's holding a translucent globe and he hands it over to number six. And the feeling to me here is this globe is sort of represents the power. So this is the actual transition of power to number six. And then we see once he hands it over, we see that his white robe says one, number one. So this is apparently actually number one. He's got that same black and white mask that all the jury people did. So number six rips off the mask. <laughs> Underneath, he finds a gorilla mask. <laughs> Naturally. I think we all saw that coming. <laughs> and then he rips that off to find himself. <laughs> I, th- I think they could have photographed that better because it wasn't it wasn't clear to me that it was him until like the last shot of him that you get. Mm, Right. Yeah. But but at the the same time though, I don't, I don't mind there being ambiguity there. Like I I don't think this episode would even work if, if like they, if if they ever slowed it down to let you catch your breath and go, all right, this is what we're doing here. (laughs) You would lose some of that magic. Like that, that's the, that's the moment in, in the prisoner where I, I first entertain the notion, oh, maybe either a, maybe he's just crazy. Or B, maybe he's plugged into a computer and this is all simulation. Or C, right. he's on some kind of psychedelic drug. Because mm-hmm. uh, otherwise, there appears to be, they, they've either gone to the trouble of finding a Maguan duplicate or cloned him or, or reconstructed somebody. But that's a huge amount of effort to go to. Right. Just to have, just yeah. in the off chance, he's, he sneaks in and pulls the mask off a gorilla guy. <laughs> so like, like, like true, like stuff's gone nuts now, right? Yeah. And, and so it, it, because that's gone nuts, I don't. I don't mind it being ambiguous. I think that almost enhances it because rather than going, oh, it's it's who and McGa- uh, it, it's it's McGowan, you, you're you're going. I think that might have been McGowan there. <laughs> right. There has been a little verbal hint actually in most of the episodes. So in the intros where they have that standard conversation between number two and number six, part of it is number six says who is number one, and number two always says you are number six. Now, if you take that inflection slightly uh, yeah. differently, <laughs> it's you are number six. Oh, wow. <laughs> you are comma number six. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So number six now gets into a crazy chase with himself. <laughs> and uh, 
And now the butler's totally on his side. So he and the butler are using fire extinguishers to fight off everybody. So it's kind of an amusing scene. And they free the prisoners, number 48 and number two. And number six starts the launch sequence for the rocket. I couldn't tell. It seemed like maybe he was setting it up to explode, but it does actually launch, as we'll see. So the former prisoners and, and number six, the prisoner, leave the rocket in disguise. They're now disguised as jurors. And they get into a machine gun fight in the trial room. <laughs> and this, again, this goes on for a while. And now what we're hearing from the Beatles is all you need is love as everybody's mowing everybody yeah. else down. <laughs> it, it's, it's actually, again, it's, it's, it's a really cool music video, in my opinion. This is a good music video episode. <laughs> And now we see something we've never seen before, which is throughout the village, an evacuation call goes out. And it, we've always seen like one helicopter, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out they've got dozens of helicopters and the, yeah. the helicopters all start evacuating the people from the village. I think, I, I think honestly, they just, uh, they didn't want to imply that all these relatively innocent people got killed. So, so this, they kind yeah, of manufactured you know, the, the, the idea that there are all the, these the, helicopters there. The Illuminati's <laughs> not all bad. It's, it's just, <laughs> no, 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 they're not just disposable. Right. <laughs> so all these helicopters are taking everyone away. And the rocket actually, and I'll, I'll give them credit for this, the rocket actually takes off from the center of the village. So we get these shots of the village while the rocket's going up. And we have this really bizarre thing where Rover gets vanquished to some really weird music. And he just, it just sort of, he just sort of disintegrates into, uh, into uh, the muck. I, I think it was kind of strange. I think the subtitle said it was Carmen Miranda, if I remember right. Yeah, yeah it's a them. it's a very odd song for the for the circumstances. Right. And now it turns out in all of this chaos that our heroes have escaped in a truck being driven by the butler and it turns out the truck is carrying that mobile living area <laughs> that we've been seeing with the bars but also the living room and the kitchen and everything. And the butler proceeds to drive them directly to London. They get on the A20 (laughs) and the side of this is all open. So there's bars there, but anyone can see in and they're dancing to them bones and acting wacky driving by all these cars. (laughs) Yes. The return of them bones, uh, them bones and the Beatles, of course, being equal and musical genius are alternately used throughout the episode. (laughs) Yep. And I, I think there's some kind of allegory here about taking your prison with you or something, I, you know, because they're in this prison, but they're driving. And I, uh, I would hope so, because otherwise this is not a good use of resources for a <laughs> truck or a prison. This is this is not, generally speaking, a mobile prison is not something that you would need. So probably <laughs> allegorical. Right. And so one by one, they get out of the truck. Uh, so I think first number 48 leaves and goes and hitchhikes. And then number two gets out and walks through London. And finally, the butler and number six arrive at number six's flat, which as we've actually seen in a previous episode, his flat is number one. <laughs> Just put a point on it. And mm-hmm. now the butler wait, goes up to oh, the- Wait, 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 hold on. Did, did we see the number one in previous episodes? Yeah, we did. Or is that just it, now? Okay. We did so we've, before, we've yeah. always had those data points to kind of think about. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, now, one difference here, though, is as the butler goes up to the door, the door opens automatically with the sound that you would hear mm-hmm. in the village. But number six jumps into a spy car, which has been put out front for him and drives off. So the butler enters. Now, I'm assuming that number six is number one and the butler is just there to help him out. But you could also say the butler is number one mm-hmm. since he goes into the That's apartment. what I was hoping for. <laughs> like the, for the, for the introduction of the butler on, I'm like, all right, there's a very good <laughs> chance. The, the little guy that no one's paying any attention to is, of course, the, the number one character. 
That was my theory throughout the throughout the series, but I think this ending leaves it ambiguous. <laughs> Many <laughs> well, things ambiguous. Another interesting thing here. So number six drives off, and the last shot we get is the same shot in the beginning of we see in each show of him driving down the highway, which kind of implies that it's like starting over again or something. Like you know, uh, yeah, it's not clear where he's driving to or or what that's all about. He's going to go we, resign again. He's going to find yeah. a new job and resign from that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we even hear the thunderclaps too. Well, the, the 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 part that I think it indicates that the, the the cycle is beginning or never ended is just the fact that the door opens automatically to his flat mm-hmm. and the butler walks in. I mean that it's such mm-hmm. a a clear illusion to everything that's been happening in the village that it's you know no one opened the door very very clearly. Whatever the machinations of the village are are present here in London in his right. new life, which right. my, makes makes my Watsonian think. That there, he is in fact in some kind of like he he's in some sort of meta prison. It's not just physical at this right. point. He's he's stuck in some simulation where they've there. He's still underneath that lamp, right? And and they're just messing with him. There's also a callback here to the first episode with Leo McKern. So that was called Chimes of Big Ben. That's early on in the series, and Leo McKern's says he wants the whole world to be the village, and he lays out this whole explanation for why that would be good. And basically everything he says in that episode is what turns out to be the case for the series. So they did this little kind of, you know, sleight of hand where early on in the series, they told you exactly what it was all about. You just had to be mm-hmm. paying attention. You know? Well, so what do you guys think? Does this work? I mean, here's, here's a theory I have, right? You have, when you put a big mystery on a series, you have three choices. And the guy came up with the fourth one. So here. <laughs> First is the approach they took with Lost, which is you try to answer it, and the answer is a disappointing anticlimax, which is usually going to be the case. Yeah. There's the approach they took with The Sopranos, which is don't answer it. You know, it's the classic lady and the tiger story where at the end the guy chooses the door to open and we never find out whether he gets eaten by a tiger. You know, in The Sopranos, they literally ended on a black screen and you don't know what happened. Then you have this approach, which maybe was pioneered by Magoon, which is go batshit crazy and let the chits land where they may. Yeah, yeah. Just knowingly go, oh, well, uh, um, no, it has meaning. You haven't struck it yet. I'll be in this other room. And then close the door and wipe the sweat from your brow and go, okay, I think they bought it. Thank God. <laughs> I, I actually, I feel that way about like Beckett plays, mm-hmm. like, like w- waiting for Gado. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, like he, like, I, I think it is clear religious allusion to it, but whatever anybody quarters him on it, he's like, no, 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 you've missed it. That's not it. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> you just, you just, you're able to, you're able to seem smart. The more ambiguity you could pump in. <laughs> so guy, you and, had uh, your own, uh, your own version of this. <laughs> yeah. There, there's another possibility, uh, which is, uh, answer the mystery and everyone's satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> It, it, it does happen, you know, sometimes the show ends with an ending that uh, makes everybody happy, or not everybody. Well, I think, but, you know. so, so to put on my, my doylist hat for a moment, uh, I think a significant part of all of that is just the, the amount of runway that you've got on a show and knowing what the length of that runway is. Mm-hmm. So I, I know two things in life. I know sci-fi and I know sitcoms. And <laughs> with sitcoms, the, the British tend to usually be much better at them, at least the ones that come over to the States, in terms of planning. So They'll go, we're going to do one, one season, and then we're done. And then if people really like it, we'll do a Christmas episode. Mm-hmm. But we're going to have nine episodes. We're going to have mm-hmm. a very clear plot arc, and it's all going to resolve in the last two episodes, and then we're done. Whereas in the States, what we tend to do is go, 
we will milk this for money until <laughs> the very last dollar yeah. comes out. And so now, okay, we ran out of stuff. Okay, well, now they're getting a divorce. Okay, well, and, and it just we just create stuff to, to keep it going as long as we can. I, I think with the prisoner, they have to rely on some of this stuff because just from a structural standpoint, they never had the ability to actually plan it out from, from beginning to end. I think, Ron, yeah. as you've pointed out a couple of times, the, the original Maguin idea was, I think, to do like five episodes. And yeah, then they like bought it. Yeah. Seven episodes. Yeah. Then they bought it and they went, okay, we actually want 14. And they don't know what the, the production schedule is going to be. So they have to film a bunch of them out of sync that have to be kind of modular to right. where the, the, the plot can't stack up on itself. And then at the end, you know, you basically have two endings that could have been separate. Like it would have been if they'd had two seasons, that actually would have been a really fun, uh, uh, like a, a fun ending to the second season. Where you're like, oh, there's that guy that died from the first season. They mm-hmm. brought him back to life. Somehow his body is not decomposed. I guess it's because it's a mobile prison. Uh, and uh, but but they, I, I don't know that they ever really could have resolved it super well because they never really knew what the actual just policy, excuse me, the, the structural mechanisms of the series were going to be as they were writing it. Right mm-hmm. now, it sounds like before I get into what the public reaction was, I mean, it sounds like both you guys are uh, happier with these than maybe the public was. Let's put it that way. I, well, so so I'm I'm happy with it in that, like I said earlier, I I would have preferred that they, I I would have preferred that they kept feeding us a little bit of line in terms of the great secret he knows because we never we never get the slightest hint of whatever the secret is that made him resign and so for me that's the big the biggest problem with this entire series is it seems like a whole lot of hoopla for no big reason, uh, like it it needs to be like you know, hinting at he knows the fact that all the heads of state in the world are reptoids with masks on or that the Soviet <laughs> Union doesn't exist or that, you know, the uh, they, they lost the nuclear codes, whatever that thing is. But it, but I, I think that it would benefit from us being able to slowly piece that together. Absent that, if they're not going to do that, which they didn't, I think it, it makes more sense than to go the really absurdist, like Stanley Kubrick acid route acid trip route because uh, we, we're not we're not going to get a big logical payoff. There's not enough data here. There's not enough chunks of things where we're going, oh, right. The Department of Agriculture is a subset of the Masons. Like we never have that. Right. <laughs> right. So a- yeah. absent that, it makes more sense for me to go atmospheric and weird. Yeah. And, and see, I've all along or you know, at least since seeing the first few episodes, I haven't thought that there is a big secret. I think the resignation seems more like something that they asked him to do something that was outside of his moral code. It was a oh. step too far. That That's what I've been thinking, because he always talks about it was a matter of conscience or it was for peace of mind, you know, that. Right. Uh, so I, I, I don't know, but that's the way I've been thinking of Guy, it. Guy, that actually makes a lot of sense in the context of this episode where the judge and the jury are all awed and baffled by the fact that he is an individual man who makes his own decisions and acts as an individual. So that that is interesting. In retrospect, then, it's not that there's data that they want to know, what, you know, what do you know? It's how, how do you think? We, we're trying to understand hey. how you were capable of doing this because we ourselves are not. And that's interesting. Right. And Guy and I have talked in some previous episodes where there are episodes where the number two isn't really after the secret. Really, they just want him to crack and give mm. it to them, which is a 1984 style thing, right? Right. Yeah. It's more about you you losing and having to give in than the specifics, you know. 
Yeah, it's, yeah, in 1984, they're not looking, they, they know everything they need to know. They just, mm. it's just, they, the state wants to crush and destroy anything that is in opposition to the state, even on a, a granular individual level. Right. right. And so to kind of close up here, we talked about the fact that there's no canonical order. And so the order I've chosen here, the arc that I'm telling of, of a story for myself is having him, each time he doesn't escape, he gets progressively closer to escaping. And the episode we had before this is called Many Happy Returns, and it's the closest he came. I don't know if you recall seeing this one. It's silent for the first half, and he actually gets all the, the, the village is empty all of a sudden. Oh, yeah, and, no, I, I have seen that one, yeah. Yeah, and he puts together a raft, and he actually gets to London and actually reunites with his people. Mm-hmm. And Go, Goes to the, his old flat where there's like a hot widow. Yeah, like, yeah. Over there and makes him a cake. <laughs> Yeah, she's great. <laughs> which, which, by, which, by the way, I, I realize it's a different episode, but I, I actually watched that recently. Ron and Guy, you guys got me onto a, a, the prisoner kick. Good. So when I, when I was up in D.C. with a friend who, who also loves the, the prisoner, we, we watched that episode. And the, the thing that I actually, the thing I liked best about that episode was that the hot eye candy was like probably in her late 50s. Yeah, and I was no, like, I that's, that. I'm actually really impressed that, that a show, particularly the sixties would, would, uh, not just default on a 24 year old at a cocktail dress for that character. It was, I was like, hats off to you guys. Yeah. yeah and the, a lot of episodes of this show do that. Uh, mm-hmm. they get people who look like people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'd say British TV historically in general has been a little yeah. better about that than, than ours. But you know, my take on that story, which typically is put way early in the in the run which i think is insane because my take on that is this is the best chance he ever had right he actually got to london he actually got to his people some of whom really are his allies and then he gets betrayed when he comes back it's mm-hmm. never going to get any better than that so so my take is basically at that point he cracks and these last two episodes are him mm-hmm. sort of descending into madness essentially and for me, the moral of this whole story okay. is, in the end, you can't fight City Hall. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I think, I think McGowan says that to some effect, right? Because I, and I assume you'll talk about this in a moment, Ron, but my understanding is that people would like basically just stalk McGowan, like go to his right. house and be like, what the hell? What, why was he in an ape mask? <laughs> like demand explanations <laughs> right. for this. And, yeah. and Mc, McGowan ba- basically was saying everyone is a prisoner of themselves and you can't yeah. escape that, which yeah. I, I actually, I wish he would elaborate on that because it sounds right. very profound, but I don't really know what that means. I like, right. are you a, are you a prisoner to your passions? Are you a prisoner to your, the paradigms that govern you? Like what, like, what are you a prisoner to? Is it a Buddhist thing where you're a prisoner to your karma? Like, I don't well, know. Probably uh, original sin. Yeah. Which, that would make more sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to throw in the Watsonian Heaton theory for you. I think he went mad underneath the brainwashing lamp in the penultimate episode, and everything we're seeing after that is him spiraling out of sanity, and mm-hmm. that everything is a, is a form of psychosis. And he's he's still under that lamp where he's gibbering in that room. You know, you you both seem to agree on that, and it's it's funny because I I thought of this now personally. I don't want to believe it. I want to believe the happy ending, but <laughs> but but it occurred to me that if you've seen Terry Gilliam's movie Brazil, uh-huh. at the end they escape with a house modular house on a trailer, and they have a nice little bucolic life in the countryside, 
then it turns out that it's actually just all the dreams of a man who's utterly snapped and he's yeah. actually in a torture chamber. So, right. so yeah, this, uh, that I was wondering that could actually be kind of a homage to this show, but yeah, McGowan has said, you know, first of all, he has refused to explain it. He has said that he was happy to have people angry. So, I mean, the public response in Britain, I think, was real anger. We saw this, like, with Lost. Like, people were really upset at the end of Lost, right? Because they were so invested, Mm -hmm. and it was such a letdown. I think he felt, look, I had an impact on you. You know, that's good. On the other hand, he allegedly went into hiding for a while because people were so pissed off that, you know, he wasn't going to do interviews or or appear in public for a while. So, (laughs) that was interesting. You you know what? I just had this great idea. Like, what would have made for a great meta episode of British comedy is where McGuid goes into hiding and he's like, well, I'll go to some remote village in Wales. <laughs> and he goes there and it's it's basically the village and, and the, the mayor is constantly trapping him and going, tell us the ending, number six. And he's like, no! I'm a man! I won't tell you! <laughs> oh, that's perfect. Yeah, that's basically what happened to him. He was a prisoner of his show for the rest of his life. You know, that's all anyone wanted to talk to him about. Okay, well, again, uh, where can people find you? <laughs> Uh, check out my show, Alienating the Audience. It is a kindred spirit to this program. I survey a number of science fiction books and films and television shows. I bring on a motley cast of nerds. So if you if you enjoy deep dives like this, my favorite thing of this whole episode, Ron, uh, that I am now going to steal and do an episode on in my show is Doylists versus Watsonians. I <laughs> love that stuff. And uh, so check out Alienating the Audience. And thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, well, we've been doing this prisoner thing for a while, but it's not quite over yet. So next up, as promised, we're going to briefly cover the four episodes we skipped. And briefly, of course, is by our own definition, so we'll see what that (laughs) means. To see if Guy thinks any of them should actually be part of the canon. And this will take us one or two episodes, depending on how long we go. We'll see how it goes. And we'll end those with a discussion of what did and didn't work about this ordering and what we'd change next time around. Very good. So we'll see you then. I guess the first thing I should tell you is that your guest and mine is Patrick McGowan. Uh, Mr. McGowan, uh, known familiarly to his uh, his fans as number six. And I suppose the obvious first question is, uh, where the hell did that idea come from? How did you get started? Boredom. With TV, initially, um, I was doing a series that was called uh, Secret Agent. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it called that here, or Danger Man? It had two types. Danger Man here. Danger Man, yes. Yep. And I'd made uh, 54 of those. And I thought that was an adequate amount. He said, all right, what's the idea? And I had a whole format prepared of this prisoner thing, um, which initially came to me on one of the locations on Secret Agent when we went to this uh, place called Port Million. Also, though, behind it, of course, was a certain impatience with uh, uh, the numerology of society and the way we're being made into ciphers. So there was a, something else behind it as well. 
you feel you're I being... I think we're progressing too fast. I think that we should pull back and uh, consolidate the things that we've discovered. You didn't initially want to do 17 films? No, uh, seven as uh, a serial as opposed to a, a series. And mm -hmm. I thought that uh, the concept of the thing would sustain for only seven. I uh, sat down and I wrote a 40-page uh, sort of history of the village, sort of telephones they used, the sewage system, what they ate, the transport, the boundaries, um, the description of a village, every aspect of it. It's exactly. a place that is trying to destroy the individual by every means possible, trying to break his spirit so that he, he accepts that he's number six and will live there happily as number six forever after. And uh, this is the one rebel that they can't break. When the last episode came out in England, it had one of the largest viewing audiences, they tell me, uh, ever over there, because everyone wanted to know who number one was, you see, because they thought it would be uh, uh, James Bond type <coughs> number one. Uh, when they did finally see it, there was a near riot, and uh, I was going to be lynched, and I had to go into hiding in the mountains for uh, two weeks till things calmed down. Absolutely true. They were angry. Oh, yeah, walking around the streets, it was dangerous. Why? Me. Why were they angry? Because they thought they'd been cheated. Because it wasn't, you know, a, a, a James Bond number one guy. It was themselves. How did you feel about the response to The Prisoner when it was first shown in Britain? Delighted. Uh, I wanted to have uh, controversy, argument, fights, discussions, people in anger, waving fists in my face, saying, how dare you? Why don't you do more secret agents that we can understand? Uh, I was delighted with that reaction. I think it's a very good one. That was the intention of the exercise. Be seeing you. 